When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One is the publication of Dr. Ken Cooper's Aerobics, um, published in 1968. And I found it really fascinating through my research to, to learn that um, really until the late 60s, there was, there was not medical consensus on whether exercise was even good for you. You know, many doctors feared that, um, feared overexertion more than they did underexertion. Um, and Dr. Cooper, for those who don't know, he was a um, physician for the Air Force. He worked with pilots and astronauts. And he, he basically, for the first time, presented research and quantified exactly you know, how and to what extent exercise could benefit everyday people. And he also, he, he was really ingenious in that he basically provided a, a sort of prescription. Even when doctors would tell their patients to exercise, it was always like no one really knew exactly how much or what was safe or healthy. And so he provided that information. And crucially, his book encouraged women as well as men to exercise aerobically. He brought the term aerobics into the vernacular. Hi, I'm Pete McCall. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the All About Fitness Podcast. That voice you just heard is a guest for this episode, fitness enthusiast, journalist, and now author, Ms. Danielle Friedman. It might strike you, and you might find it fascinating to know that as recently as 50-something years ago, women could not run. Women could not enter running races. Women were told they should not exercise. The thought was that exercise was bad for women. Now, to be fair, and I'm talking about 55, maybe 60 years ago, we weren't even sure that exercise was good for everybody, men and women. And so the thought was that exercise was only for athletes or for the military, let alone the average normal person or let alone women. They were told not to exercise because they thought it was dangerous. Imagine that. Well, Danielle Friedman is a journalist and exercise enthusiast who, who realized that nobody had written a book about the history of women in exercise or women in fitness, and that's exactly what she did. On this episode of the All About Fitness podcast, and I'm keeping this introduction brief because this was a phenomenal and a fascinating conversation, but on this episode, we talk about Danielle's book, Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World. And she does a fascinating job. Again, for me, I'm, I'm a history buff. If you listen to All About Fitness on a regular basis, you know that I love the intersection of history, culture, and fitness. When I saw Danielle's book, I knew I wanted to speak with her right away. Now, full disclosure, I've had on as a guest a few times Dr. Natalia Petrozella, who is a professor of American history, and Dr. Petrozella specializes in, in the, the history of the fitness culture and how fitness and exercise has impacted American culture. 
And it was actually Natalia, Dr. Pretrzella, had tweeted out something about Danielle's book, which is how I found out about her. So thank you to Dr. Pretrzella. For listeners, this is a fascinating discussion about a very, very important topic. Women in exercise, women in fitness. Not something that we think about, but something that has a very nuanced and a fascinating history. On this episode of All About Fitness, it's all about the history of women in exercise with Danielle Friedman, the author of Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World. Today on the All About Fitness podcast, we are speaking with journalist and author Danielle Friedman. How are you doing, Danielle? I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing well. Now, Danielle is the author of the book, Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World. What prompted, number one, I love the title. I love the theme of this book. <laughs> what, what was it that, that said that caused this book to come out, that this book was living inside you and you had to put it on paper? What was the impetus for it? Sure. Um, well, I am a longtime women's health reporter and editor. Um, I had spent many years of my career in newsrooms. Um, and then as a freelance writer, um, I'm also a lifelong runner and just uh, someone who really enjoys being physically active. Um, but the book itself came about um, about five years ago. Um, I was actually... Uh, it was the lead up to my wedding and it sort of motivated me to check out bar classes for the first time. It's sort of like a, I'm always a little sheepish talking about that because it's sort of a, you know, predictable reason to go to a new exercise class, but um, it was what it was. And while I was there, I became intrigued about the origins of bar. Um, I, in particular, I noticed that, you know, the workout was based on a lot of pelvic tilts and thrusts. And as someone who's written about women's sexual health, I was curious if there was any um, impact, you know, if, if bar classes actually could improve women's sexual health. So I started digging into it and I stumbled on the story of Lottie Burke, the woman who is credited with inventing bar in the late 1950s. And Lottie, for those who don't know, is just this incredibly fascinating, complicated, controversial figure. She was very much ahead of her time in wanting and encouraging women to tap into their own desires. And she, she did create her workout to help women um, improve their sex lives. And so I wrote about her story for New York Magazine's The Cut. And while I was researching that story, at one point I thought I would love to speak to the person who wrote, you know, the history of women's fitness. And I was really shocked to discover that that book did not exist. And so it really was like a light bulb moment for me then. I should mention too, I actually started my career as a book editor. I spent the first five years of my career as, an, as a nonfiction mm. editor at Penguin. So I was always sort of on the lookout for a topic that was rich enough and complicated enough and that I felt passionately enough about that I wanted to do that kind of deep dive and spend years and years of my life uh, devoted to. And this, this was absolutely it. And it really just brought together so many of my professional and personal interests. Well, and the, the fascinating thing about this for listeners, one of the reasons why I love this book is 
I am a history geek, especially when it comes to the history of the fitness industry. And a number of the people that you feature in the book have been previous guests of the podcast. So as I was going through it and I saw these names pop up, I have not obviously Ms. Burke has passed, but I have interviewed some bars, some um, people who are very well known in the bar community. A good colleague of mine, a close friend, uh, runs a bar a bar education program. I work with her on a different program. So it's interesting to see that. Now, real quick, before we, we go on, can we just describe, can you describe what makes bar different? Because you talk a little bit about what Lottie does, but it's a very specific mm-hmm. format. And it's not just, so if you can talk a little bit about what makes bar different. And then if you could, Danielle, I'd be interested, what was your reaction? Did you enjoy that class and what kept you going back? Sure. Um, well, so, you know, bar in its contemporary form has, it's evolved quite a lot since Lottie created it and different franchises have slightly different approaches. Um, but for those who haven't done it, it's it's based on a series of sort of teeny tiny resistance movements performed at a ballet bar. That's where it gets its name or on the mat. Um, and it's, I mean, it's different because it's it's set to music, um, but it's, I wouldn't say it's really fast paced. I mean, you are pulsing at different times and um, Lottie herself was very, she was pretty innovative in in setting um, a workout to contemporary music. She, she was a figure of the swinging 60s in London. And so she loved <laughs> teaching to the Beatles and rock and roll. And that was really new at the time. Um, and, um, you know, it combines elements of yoga and dance and even like physical therapy. And so it's similar, you know, if, if you've done yoga or Pilates or other, uh, you know, women's group fitness, not just women's, but just group fitness classes, you'll sort of recognize elements of all of those uh, regimens, but together it becomes its own thing. Um, and like I said, it is also so many of the moves in order to have proper form, you're encouraged to talk, you know, to, um, to, uh, roll your pelvis forward a tiny bit. I'm sure instructors would have more, <laughs> more precise way <laughs> a little bit more that. detail on that. And, and how'd you, yeah. how'd you like it? How, how do you feel? How do you feel your body? Did it, did you, do you feel that it changed your body and did you like the outcome, the results of it? Yeah, I, I love bar and, um, it is really hard. And I had been warned, you know, that it's sort of deceptively hard because individually the moves, um, I mean, they feel challenging after a while, but they're, you know, because they're, they're, the movements are so tiny, it's not obvious that it would be as difficult as it is, but I did find myself, you know, getting strong, feeling sore and then strong literally in muscles I didn't know that I had. Um, it really impacted my core strength and just sort of my overall, um, like it put more of a spring in my step. Um, it was, as I write in the book, it was really the first full body strength based workout, um, that I, that I had done. And so I loved it. Um, you know, I think there are certain aspects of bar culture that are, um, 
that could be improved. But as far as the workout itself, I really loved how it made me feel. Well, I, I just, I just so you know, I mean, I've, I've made a career more than 20 years in our industry and there's a lot about the fitness industry culture that could be improved. So it's not just, <laughs> it's not just a bar. Let's, let's just put that, let's put that out there. <laughs> now let's look, I'm going to pick up your book and, and for listeners, I'm just going to pull up because what I love about the way you structured it and the way you wrote it was your chapter titles. When you look at your chapter titles, oh, sweat, you. reduce, tuck, run, bounce. I mean, immediately I was able to see what you're doing. So how'd you come up? If you could talk a little bit about the structure of the chapters, it's so creative and especially the way it flows throughout the book. Thank you. Um, yeah, absolutely. So first, as far as just the chapter titles themselves, um, it was very important to me that this history convey a sense of movement. Um, you know, I think when you're writing about exercise, you don't, or I should say when someone is reading about exercise, you know, it shouldn't feel like a slog. It shouldn't feel tedious. I wanted the tone of the book to match the subject. Um, and I also wanted readers to be able to see themselves in these women's stories and in these pages. And so um, I very strategically chose to give each title, uh, you know, make each title a verb and try to think of the, the verb that best captured a particular era um, and movement. And, and you know, instantly sort of um relate to the to the reader on that on that almost like um in that physical way um as far as the structure it really was a challenge because um i wanted the book in addition to just feeling really energetic to read i wanted it to be entertaining and i wanted it to read as novelistically as possible i wanted to bring these figures to life um, for the reader and to, and to allow the reader to step into their shoes. Um, and so I, you know, my job is, is, is to be a storyteller. Um, of course, a, a nonfiction, <laughs> completely, uh, you know, reality-based storyteller. Um, and so I chose to essentially tell the story chronologically beginning in the 1950s, when, you know, you could argue that the contemporary fitness industry really was born. It was also a time when when Americans were moving less than ever before and when women especially were discouraged from moving um, in a pretty pronounced way. Um, and then each chapter basically focuses on, it, it kind of, it did work out in, in the end. It's, it's kind of like a different decade slash era, the rise of a workout movement that defined that era, and then a profile of the pioneer or two or three who helped to popularize it. So, um, yeah, it progressed us from the 1950s through the nineties. And then we, we fast forward a little bit at the end, but it, it does wind its way up to the present. Well, and that's what honestly, Daniel, it really does read like a novel. It does read, it flows really easily just for, for the listener. It's a really, it's an easy read. You go through it and it's entertaining too, because you're like some of this stuff you might think, Oh, I know my parents did that. Or I know my mom did that. Um, you know, when you think about certain eras, let, let's, let's go back in time for a second. Let's start with this because I really do think, and, and, and you'll see where we want to, where I want to go with this conversation but I really do think it's important to set the foundation of how we're, we're even number one, were women encouraged to exercise back in the 50s? Let's take a look at the 50s. People were not exercising. I would agree with you. I'd, right. I'd maybe put the start of the fitness industry in the 60s, 
when that's when you had health clubs and, and Nautilus was invented mm-hmm. in 1970. Mm-hmm. But but I, I'm with you because that's when we started raising the awareness of the 50s that hey we need to do something. So let's go back. What what did fitness for women look like in the 1950s? Um, it was nearly non-existent. You know, um, as you say, uh, in gen- you know in general. Americans were not really exercising then. There was this premium placed on living a life of comfort and leisure. And it was an era when we saw the rise of automation, you know, and everything from the appliances we Americans kept in their homes to uh, to factories. And so, um, you know, it felt like that felt like progress at the time. Um, also desk jobs, Surged, you know, office jobs became much more sedentary. TV um, became the new American pastime. And so um, there were, you know, it was really sort of um, seemed absurd to many Americans that they should go out and purposely, you know, sweat and and exert their bodies. Well, if I can, um, if I can cut in for one second here, I'm just yeah. thinking about because too, and I hadn't thought about this at all, but we the 1930s we had obviously the 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 um, depression and then we had a war mm-hmm. for four or five years. And so when you mm-hmm. contextualize that, if you look at that from the the early 1930s to 1945, 46, that's 15 years of a pretty arduous time in our country, you know, in terms of work, labor force, everything. So I never thought about that before. So by 1954, 55, you're like, man, we've been through a lot. I'm just going to go back on, on easy. I'm going to pop my, my Swanson's in the oven. I'm going to sit back, watch one of my three channels on my you know 12-inch black and white TV that takes up half my living room. I never thought about that before. So sorry. keep. But when you put that together in that short time span, of course, in the 1950s, we are looking for ways to take it easy because we had just been through a lot. So what exactly. else does fitness look like in that era for women? Yeah, yeah, and I mean you're absolutely right. It was seen all of the all of the um, new luxuries and conveniences that that put a premium on leisure were seen as sort of a a bomb after so many decades of of you know tumult. Um, but for women, women um, were kind of uh, it, it it was flat out taboo for for women to exercise. Um, you know, during World War II women had been brought into the factory and had gone to work as men were off at war. And everyone's familiar probably with the Rosie the Riveter, we can do it poster, um, you know, where Rosie has her teeny tiny little little bicep <laughs> showing. Um, but after the war, culturally, it was this period of very strict, rigid gender norms and social norms. And women were basically told to leave the jobs that they had taken up when the men returned and returned to the kitchen. And the proper social order sort of rested on men behaving um, in what was perceived as, you know, manly, which often meant men were supposed to be strong and women were really supposed to be um, to defer to men and be more submissive. And the idea that women were the weaker sex was sort of widely accepted. Um, so for women, sweating was taboo. Uh, you know, actively lifting weights would have been incredibly subversive. Um, and there were a lot of medical myths too that that 
that persisted that if a woman overexerted herself or even not even overexerted, if she just sort of exerted herself at full capacity, her uterus could fall out um, or she would turn into a man. She would grow a mustache and um, just become unladylike, which was which was a, a major insult at that time and very threatening. So um, it was it was against that backdrop that some of the early contemporary fitness pioneers had to, you know, try to begin to convince this very skeptical nation that everyone could benefit from exercise, but women, you know, in particular, and I write about Bonnie Pruden in my first chapter, um, Bonnie, as far as placing the book in the 50s, she, um, and there's so much I could say about Bonnie, but um, she was on the cover of a 1957 issue of Sports Illustrated, um, where she, you know, very um, enthusiastically encouraged men and women to take up exercise. And she helped to really, you know, it, it, she was planting the seed at that time, along with contemporaries like Jack LaLanne, that um, exercise could be beneficial and also crucially for women, um, that it was a, an effective figure shaping tool. And that, you know, that's that message, of course, um, would be baked into the industry until today. Well, and it's interesting because for listeners, I mean, Bonnie Pruden, and I think you do a great job of painting the picture of who she was. When you really look at that, and the other name you said, Jack Lane, were the two first major, for lack of a better term, fitness influencers, right? Mm-hmm. We, did, we didn't have a you know, supercomputer in our pocket back in the time. Mm-hmm. To your point, all we had were weekly magazines or, or daily publications or maybe even you know, TV shows. And so to be, for a woman to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated when she did, I mean, literally was quite groundbreaking. Now, let's, let's jump forward a little bit and take a look at when did, it, when did it start becoming more acceptable for women to exercise? And what I'm thinking about mainly is like, what happened in the 1970s? Because in the 1970s, if we can jump ahead from the 50s to the 70s, what happened in the 1970s? Because that really is, Danielle, when we look back, that's when fitness did start, started its upward curve to where we are today, yeah. right? I think 60s yeah, is kind of flat, early 70s, mm-hmm. and then sometime in the mid-70s, and, and listeners, you can't see my arm. I'm doing this on video. I'm kind of showing like a chart going off to the moon. It was sometime in the 70s when you started seeing more and more people coming into fitness. So if you could talk a little bit about, because that also coincides, you talked about Lonnie Burke, but that coincides with the sexual revolution, that coincides with kind of the going out the disco era and everything. So how did women, how did the approach and the attitude of women in exercise shift in that, in that, in that time span? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I sort of trace it back to a few really key turning points that occurred um, in some cases, you know, right before the 1970s. Um, one is the publication of Dr. Ken Cooper's aerobics um, published in 1968. And I found it really fascinating through my research to, to learn that um, really until the late 60s, there was there was not medical consensus on whether exercise was even good for you. You know, many doctors feared that um, feared overexertion more than they did underexertion. Um, and Dr. Cooper, for those who don't know, he was a um, 
physician for the Air Force. He worked with pilots and astronauts. And he he basically, for the first time, presented research and quantified exactly, you know, how and to what extent exercise could benefit everyday people. And he also, he, he was really ingenious in that he basically provided a, a sort of prescription. Even when doctors would tell their patients to exercise, it was always like no one really knew exactly how much or what was safe or healthy. And so he provided that information. And crucially, his book encouraged women as well as men to exercise aerobically. He brought the term aerobics into the vernacular. Um, so there was that shift in medicine that suddenly, re- you know, the medical community largely got behind vigorous aerobic exercise. And then, of course, there was the rise of the women's movement, um, which was happening at exactly the same time. Um, I was very fascinated by the section in the seminal women's health book, Our Bodies Ourselves, that dealt with exercise. And um, it was clear from that chapter that they were they were really having to educate and convince women to use their bodies, you know, um, in a more active physical way, uh, than they ever had before. So many of the women I interviewed, you know, talked about how they had been really active as young girls, but as soon as they hit puberty, they were, they were pretty much like told to stop and the opportunities for physical activity were so limited. Um, so in the 1970s, those, those forces, really collided and we saw the running boom and the rise of women's running and and the rise of aerobics both jazzercise and Jackie Sorensen's aerobic dancing were invented in 1969 and started to gain traction throughout the 70s um the the co-ed you know multiplex gym started to take off in the mid 1970s and the gym started to become a single scene and just this key social institution and the first women's bodybuilding competitions were held in the late 1970s the i should say the first contemporary ones there were there were earlier ones but the the first contemporary ones and so um it was it was this you know it was a period of just fitness explosion that that very much paved the way for for the industry today well i think it's and, and again i'm putting on my historian hat here and and to contextualize because I, that's a very important point that you started out with i think i think the listeners be surprised that once upon a time and i'm thinking at the turn of the the 19th to the 20th century even though that was the era of physical culture there's still a lot of debate at the, at the medical in the medical literature at the time that exercise was too strenuous and that exercise mm-hmm. if you exercise regularly it would take years off your life and so you did have that debate so to your point cooper's research and cooper's publication was very mm-hmm. important because there'd been research on exercise in the context of the military and how do we how do we get our soldiers mm-hmm. prepared mm-hmm. but nobody had really mm-hmm. said this is appropriate for mainstream and it wasn't until the late 60s early 70s where we started getting data. You had Cooper with, with his aerobics. You had Nautilus, you had, uh, Nautilus with Arthur Jones. You know, the, he made strength training more accessible. So, yeah, it really popped up. Now, really quick, because this is, I mean, this is fascinating. When I, when I interviewed Kathy Smith, who's one of the big um, influencers mm-hmm. in the 80s, Kathy talked about in the 70s, 
it was really strength training and running was discouraged for women and all and yeah. it wasn't and, and women's sports didn't really take off until the late 1970s after title nine so you have right. all these all these con- contextual things that is just women just weren't really given that opportunity let's even make mm-hmm. the point because this, this to me this is fascinating and the average listener out there might not be familiar with his name, but who is Bobby Gibb and what did she do that really, I mean, what she did was in 1966, what she did in 1966 mm-hmm. was, was huge, was earth-shattering. Mm-hmm. And now, this weekend, tens of thousands of women all over the country are going to be probably hundreds of thousands of women all over the country will be doing the same thing. So who's Bobby Quick and, and how did she kind of break the mold? Bobby was the first woman to run the Boston Marathon. Um, She technically ran it unofficially. She had applied to enter the race, which at that time was only open to men. And they flat out denied her. Um, she she was and still is very much a free spirit and and had run extremely long distances. She grew up outside of Boston, saw the race as a young woman and was inspired to enter. Um, but when Bobby was denied, she's got, she, she sort of said, you know, screw that. And <clears throat> what had begun as just something she did for love became she want, you know, more of a statement. And so she ended up. Um, tra- she was living in California, traveling to Boston, and she hid in some bushes near the start of the race. And once it got going, she inserted herself into the crowd. She crashed the race. And it was, you know, it took a minute for, for the runners to sort of wrap their heads around the fact that there was a woman in their midst, which was just shocking to them. And but she she ran, you know, she she stayed the course and she ran a pretty fast race. And um, at the end, like city officials were there to shake her hand, which was not the case a year later when Catherine Spitzer famously ran the race with a number. But um, but Bob, Bobby was the first. Well, it, it, but but again, I hadn't thought about this until now because in the '60s, women were pushing for the Equal Rights Amendment. You had a lot of that. You had the civil rights. I mean, '64 is right on the cusp of, and that's right in the midst of the civil rights era. So yeah. this is really so you're seeing exercise. And that's one of the things that's so fascinating to me is exercise is such a part for some of us. And, and for those of us that, that exercise regularly, we actually, I mean, I, I couldn't imagine a day without being active. It's like I w- couldn't imagine mm-hmm. not brushing my mm-hmm. teeth, right? So mm-hmm. some people, because mm-hmm. you know, now it's such a part of our daily activity. So to go back just a few years in time, just 50 years in time to, to the fact that we weren't doing this, is is very significant. So as you as you look through the different eras, what era stood out to you is kind of like the one where the biggest change made. Like what what era where women made the kind of the biggest step forward in terms of having an equal ground for for exercise and fitness. Uh, well, I would say definitely the 1970s. Um, Bobby Gibb and then Catherine Switzer, who I mentioned, um, and Catherine especially became a very um, dedicated activists to, you know, in terms of creating more opportunities for women runners. And she and several fellow activists, you know, successfully changed the rules so that women were allowed into the Boston Marathon, although not, not till 1972. Um, and, you know, that time too, in addition to Title IX, there was Billie Jean King and the Battle of the Sexes. And the feminist movement really did, you know, pretty explicitly connect women's power with, with you know, power in society, with women's physical power and strength. Um, and so, 
there were just tremendous strides made during that decade. I also write in the book about how the sports bra was invented in 1977. I mean, it's <clears throat> shocking to me that it took so long, but I think it, it's a reflection of, you know, the how little women were exercising before that point. Um, Lycra leotards uh, came onto the scene in the 70s. It The 70s saw the birth of sort of a generation of, of female fitness innovators and entrepreneurs. Um, and, you know, crucially, I think also after the passage of Title IX, um, while, you know, many people know how it changed women's sports in high school and college, if you think about it, and what I found was that once those women graduated, they they wanted to keep being active. You know, they they didn't want to follow the same path as their mother. Um, and so many of those women who previously really only would have had the opportunity to be PE teachers um, forged careers in fitness and helped to populate um, fitness spaces. So there are a lot of kind of hidden influences that contributed to the rise of women's fitness. Well, when you look at, and, and now I want to kind of want to make this shift into dance aerobics. And, and we talked about mm-hmm. Judy Shepard Massett, who found a jazzercise. She was a dance instructor that she found out people were taking her classes and wanted to evolve. And Tammy Lee Webb, it's funny you say that because you had Judy Shepard Massett was, was a dance instructor. And then Tammy Lee Webb, who created Buns of Steel was a PE teacher. She had gone to school to be a PE teacher. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Let's, let's, let's look now, because I think a lot of people, even now, and this is this, I've been teaching group fitness for more than 20 years. Even now, when people think of group, they think of aerobics and they think of just what you said, the spandex, even the leg, we haven't worn leg warmers in 40 years, but they still have They're this coming vision. back. They're coming back. Yeah. And I've seen, yeah, I've seen them at different, at different things. But let's talk a little bit about about what was it about dance aerobics that all of a sudden with Jane Fonda with with, with Jazzercise you had this huge booming population and that that in my opinion is when fitness went exponential in the eighties yeah. and, and that that yeah. kind of is a segue of the eighties so what what is it about what is it about that movement the era of dance aerobics that got so many women into exercise yeah. So, you know, there had been group fitness for women before dance aerobics. There were there was Lottie Burke. There was there were sort of these um, spa-based classes at Elizabeth Arden and uh, Helena Rubinstein. But those classes were pretty much exclusive. They were very exclusive and they mostly attracted and were only accessible to very, you know, wealthy, privileged women. Um, Dance aerobics really helped to bring group fitness to the masses. And Jackie Sorensen, Judy Shepard Missit in the 70s, they were teaching in rec centers and church basements and um, offered a, you know, while still, while still exclusive to, to an extent, a more democratic model. And so, um, it, it began to spread. It, be, they, it began to go viral. At this, you know, I would also say that um, for women who really had no interest in sort of breaking any any gender barriers and did not consider themselves part of the feminist movement, dance aerobics was a very um, felt very safe and non-threatening. Even though you know they were sweating, they were working their bodies. Dance has long been sort of sanctioned as a, an appropriate female activity. Um, and it was also the classes were sold as a way to, you know, become more beautiful. So they were very, it was very acceptable. 
Um, it's fascinating, yeah, to, to trace back how Jazzercise especially did what we would now say, you know, go viral by 1984, I want to say. It, early 80s, it was the second fastest growing franchise behind Domino's Pizza. And then it's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty sort of linear trajectory um, from, from Jazzercise and Dance Aerobics to Jane Fonda. Um, even though each of the workouts varied, Jane, of course, by, you know, by writing her best-selling original workout book, and then, of course, making her video, she brought aerobics to the masses on a, you know, unprecedented level. And, and, um, well, you real quick, if, if I can cut in real quick, because what, what role, because again, this just occurred to me, what role did like the VCR play in that in the V in the VHS? Because because that, I mean, that was now we're in this era of virtual streaming fitness. Mm-hmm. But Jane, I mean, Jane Fonda was. You you can make the argument both Jane and Judy were the leaders of virtual at home fitness. I mean, you had Jack Lalanne in the '60s with his TV show. Right. But but what role did did the VHS tape play in promoting fitness? Yeah, a huge role. And yeah, there was Jacqueline, Bonnie Pruden had a TV show. They made they made LPs and records that you could exercise along to in the <laughs> living room. There were books. <laughs> but, I need to find um, some of those. At some point I need to find those. Yeah, I have if I if I had a few minutes, I have some of them on my shelf behind me here. Um, um but the story of of the intersection of VHS and fitness is just fascinating. And one of my favorite, you know, kind of stories that I encountered while telling this larger story while writing the book. Um, when Jane was first approached about making a video, she didn't own a VCR. No one she knew owned a VCR because they were prohibitively expensive. VHS tapes were prohibitively expensive. Um, something like, you know, it was like a, like $150 in today's, in today's dollars to buy like a single um, VHS. That's and right, so yeah. she said, she said no at first, you know, she was like, who watches VHS tapes? Um, and then the the guy who who had come up with the idea to put her on camera in that way um, was very persistent, and eventually she said yes. Um, and her tape is actually credited with not only really launching the home you know workout industry, but also the home video industry mm. at writ large um, because in order to benefit from her workout, you had to own the tape, you know, you had to do it day after day. And so it really kind of catalyzed people to go out and buy VCRs and to buy her workout. And then the the rest of the home entertainment industry benefited. Um, I love, and this didn't make it into my book, but I love uh, the story of how Judy also benefited and took advantage of, um, benefited from VHS. Jazzercise was very um, ahead of its time and innovative in using, in in filming, you know, her choreography, which they could then distribute to franchisees. And and often women had to, you know, use like the VCR at the local high school because they didn't own one to get together and learn the routines. But she was, you know, very, they were very tech savvy and ahead of their time in that way. 
Well, Judy and Jazzercise created the first instructor training program. That was the first widespread, mm-hmm. let's educate instructors, let's get everybody on the same page, which led, I mean, that's been my career is, is trainer and, and instructor education for years. So she, I, I know her big, at some point I need to send her a, a, a bouquet of roses <laughs> and a nice bottle of wine because I wouldn't be doing <laughs> what I'm doing um, if it weren't. But I'm serious, if it weren't for these yeah, pioneers like totally. Judy that, that, have, that have done this. Now, let's take a couple steps, let's, let's step forward a couple years. Well, first of all, I want to say this, Danielle, and I've mentioned this. I think I talked about this when I interviewed Kathy Smith, but mm-hmm. I, I was I started my fitness career in the late 1990s. And so I was doing most of my group fitness teaching between about 1999 and about 2006, 2007. Mm-hmm. And what I noticed during that time, I was in my early 30s. What I noticed during that time is women at the time who were age 40 and above. So these were women born in probably the 1950s, you know, 1950s and 60s. In the gyms, they did not have the physical physical literacy that women mm-hmm. who are my age, age 30 and younger did. Mm-hmm. They grew up playing sports. Mm-hmm. There was a market, like in a group fitness class, I could easily see somebody who's maybe at the time, you know, 45, 50 years old in 19, or sorry, in 2002, so she was born in, in 1950, versus mm-hmm. somebody who's in their 20s because they moved so different. They had such different experiences mm-hmm in terms of, of movement growing up, in terms of playing sports mm-hmm. versus not playing sports. Mm-hmm. Now, let's take a look at you know, the, the, where I'm going to go with this in, in terms of questioning is how has the marketing, how has exercise and fitness been marketed to women, and how has that evolved over the years? I mean, you mentioned early, it was like the beauty, the spa, relax, you know, enhance your beauty. Mm-hmm. And, and where, are we, where are we today in 2022 with how fitness is presented? Yeah, that was just a fascinating evolution for me to attempt to trace. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The, um, I mean, the short answer is that for so much of the past 70 years, um, fitness was just pretty overtly marketed to women as, as a beauty tool, as a beauty tool first and a tool for feeling good and strong and, um, you know, and, and, uh, vital sort of second. Um, and that's, you know, I'm generalizing there. There were some, there were some nuances and subtleties, but that that's the predominant theme. Um, and I write too about how, when my book starts, you know, there, it was very much a goal for women to be thin, but it was only as the, the fitness industry sort of got going that the goal to be toned and then to be, you know, muscular and devoid of fat really became an ideal as well. Um, What I think is really interesting is that in the past five, maybe 10 years, but especially the past five years, I, we have started to see a shift in the language of fitness. Um, You know, it has in many areas, in many, uh, you know, I think this is more true in big cities and coastal cities, but it has, um, it has become pretty, um, you know, taboo for instructors to talk to, to explicitly like encourage women to strive for a bikini body or to basically lose weight, you know, and and change their body to meet one specific narrow beauty ideal. That's, that is really new. Um, well, if if I can, I'm going to cut in on that real quick, Danielle, because I'm involved in a couple forums, a couple Facebook forums for instructors, Mm -hmm. for fitness professionals Mm -hmm. from idea. And for listeners, idea is Mm -hmm. a trade association of personal trainers and fitness instructors the American Council on Exercise, and just all my colleagues who are educators and, and top you know, the senior directors of group fitness, 
But yeah, there's been a very, very specific approach, especially the last two or three years to move away yeah. from, you know, we're here to burn calories, to move away from it, we're here to burn fat, to move away from what we've traditionally said. And there's been a lot of, we've kind of pushed each other's instructors to say, what, how can we be more inclusive to say, hey, mm-hmm. we're doing this to feel better. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm really glad that, that you highlight that in your book. And what do you think, the, how do you think that mindset, how does that, as a woman, let me ask you this question now, as put yourself like kind of in the, in, in, in the consumer side, as a woman, as a fitness consumer, how does that make you feel to see that shift to go from where 10, 15 years ago, you were being sold skinny, 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 and now it's healthy, wellness, be vibrant. How, do you notice that difference as a consumer? And how does that make you feel as a woman? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, and I've thought a lot about this and it's hard for me to separate, you know, it is hard, I, you know, to separate sort of the fact that I'm, I'm now 40 and, you know, and, and the ways in which I've just sort of evolved as a person and, and developed my own body acceptance from the ways in which the industry has also evolved. However, um, I know that, you know, I am just celebrating on every level, personal and professional, the fact that fitness is moving toward a place where it's more about celebrating what our bodies can do and not about constantly being told that we need to change. Um, you know, I think that for a long time, um, so much of fitness culture was about, was just about, you know, disciplining ourselves. And like, I think of that phrase, you know, fat, or excuse me, sweat is fat crying, which is like, oh, you know, (laughs) and, and I think, I think that, um, I think that viewing fitness as a way to improve mental health, emotional health, foster community, feel good in our own skin and celebrate our bodies, you know, as they are, is just such a more constructive way to incorporate it into our lives. And so, um, you know, I, I'm always hesitant to oversell the, the change because it's just beginning. And, um, and I think it's going to require a major just shift in sort of the cultural mindset, but we are starting to see an expansion in our ideals of what a fit body looks like in the types of clothing that are available to a wider range of sizes. Again, a lot of work still has to happen there, but we're starting to see some changes and, and just to, you know, um, who our idea of like who fitness is for. And, and you're right. We, we have, we, we've, we've started going that direction. We've turned the dial and, and it has to be a concerted effort. And the challenge becomes, and I mentioned this to you before we hit record, the challenge becomes, Danielle, is that you still have fitness being marketed based on, on sex appeal. You still have, when you look at, it's changing. It is in the process of changing. But up until the last few years, you still have these pictures of really ridiculously fit, young, very active people being presented as as the image of fitness, when in reality, fitness is for every body, two different, two different words mm-hmm. with, with that. Mm-hmm. And, and that really is, I mean, that, that's been the remarkable thing. So what the interesting, and then we'll, we'll get, we'll start wrapping up with this, but what I find fascinating. So I was in New York quite a bit in the early two thousands. I used to work, I worked in Washington DC for Washington sports mm-hmm. clubs, which is the same as New York sports clubs. Mm-hmm. And I also was in Equinox quite a bit. I worked for the sports club LA from 06 to 08 and it was sold to Equinox in 2014 and we had the Reebok club on the Upper West Side and we had the, mm-hmm. the club up on 61st and 3rd. I'm yeah. saying that because 
I was in health clubs, different health clubs a lot in the early 2000s. None, none had Olympic platforms or barbell weight training. I mean, they had barbells, but they didn't have the Olympic platforms. They didn't have kettlebells. And now I work for a company called EOS Fitness, still relatively new in the job. And we, we're growing. We're rapidly growing our gyms. Well, in our new gyms, Danielle, we have somewhere between six and ten Olympic platforms in each gym. And most of the time when I go in there, probably they're being used, half of them are being used by women or at least wow. one woman with one guy. And it's been such mm-hmm. a shift in that. So what's been that biggest shift in the last number of years? Because now we have – or what was, it, what was it that you'd think? And do you write about this in, in, the, in the towards the end of the book? I didn't, I didn't finish it all the way. Sorry, but I did, did go through it. No. But towards the end of the book, because I really think one of my favorite things about fitness is the last 10 years, we have this movement of strong is a new skinny. And you do see women yeah. picking up the weight and do see women moving towards the barbell, especially women over the age of 40. It's critical because your body needs strength tra- as your body evolves and, and changes. Mm-hmm. Strength training is going to be more beneficial to the aging female body than other forms of exercise. So what was it that kind of made that shift and made it more acceptable for women to quote unquote get under the bar meaning the barbell mm-hmm. as opposed to starting with the bar with Lottie Burke I never thought about that yet we started yeah, with Lottie Burke yeah. in the bar lifting white light weights now in 2022 when we reference bar a lot of times we're talking about the 45 pound Olympic bar so when did women make that shift and become more comfortable with the idea of strength training well I very intentionally so the title of my first chapter is reduce which at that time was a euphemism for losing weight and the last chapter is titled expand um, because I did want to capture that evolution that has taken place um, in my book I really looked at the I looked at the rise of women's strength training throughout the 80s and into the 90s and sort of how we got to the Tammy Lee Webb, uh, buns of steel, abs of steel ideal, um, which, you know, then we've seen sort of, um, repeated with, uh, you know, uh, wanting Michelle Obama's biceps or, you know, other sort of, um, female physiques that are very muscular and strong looking. And I look at, um, I actually wrote specifically about Lisa Lyon, who is a kind of eccentric and controversial, uh, women's bodybuilder and and advocate for muscle, crusader for muscle and the idea that um, muscle was not inherently unfeminine, which is sort of wild that our culture had to be, you know, taught that. And at the same time, I think we're still learning that. Um, You know, with the rise of it, it, so I would say like it started, the shift started with the the rise of muscle, as a beauty ideal, you know? Um, And then in the early 2000s with um, the birth of CrossFit or in the the aughts, um, and and just the work of a lot of, you know, activists who are advocating for a more expansive view of what the female body, you know, can look like and do, you know, we've seen, we've seen, those we've seen a shift and we've seen opportunities increase and, um, and, and just a real pushback against, you know, against the idea that women are supposed to be, you know, must be small to be, um, to be loved. But I do think there is still very much a fear of bulk among women. Um, 
you know, we, we, it's really hard to shake that idea that women need to be smaller than men and, um, less is more, but a growing chorus are advocating for kind of taking up space. And so I think those shifting ideals are, are making it more, um, you know, feel more attractive for women to want to lift, but, but there's a lot, you know, um, there's a lot in there, many but, other. Yeah. Well, well, to point out the listeners, cause I always make this point in lectures is there's no difference between male muscle tissue in my body and your body. One kilogram of muscle from your body should be able to generate the same amount of force as one kilogram of muscle from my body. The diff- other differences lie in body structure, hormones, the amount of fat that our bodies carry. So I just want to point that out that, that, when you look at a physiology standpoint, pound for pound or kilo for kilo, a woman theoretically can generate the same amount of force as a male. The only, the only mm-hmm. difference being men produce more testosterone for that. So as I get ready to wrap up here, how did writing this book change your relationship to exercise? Yeah, um, great question. I think it gave me a much deeper appreciation for the opportunities that I have to move today and to become strong. Um, you know, I'm not someone who lifts myself, but knowing that that's the, you know, I have the, the ability and opportunity to go down that path. If I, if, and when the time is right, um, is just really, really meaningful to me. And also I'm a runner. And so, um, you know, appreciating that, women fought for my right to run, which I really didn't fully appreciate, um, has just infused my routines with, you know, a much deeper sense of meaning. And that was one of my goals in writing this book too. I, I hoped that by, you know, sort of informing and educating readers about this history, I would be, I would just be adding another dimension to their, to their, fitness routines. Um, It's also given me a really clear-eyed look at how fitness culture and beauty culture, um, you know, became became and remained so intertwined um, throughout history. And so that if I do find that I'm sort of motivated to work out for cosmetic purposes, I am better able to, you know, really think hard about what is Um, what is fueling that motivation? And I can go about, you know, my, my routines in a way that feels, um, that feels more about that, that, that just feels more, more clear eyed and more empowered, um, you know, um, understanding kind of the forces that are at play and then choosing to, to sort of exert my own, um, my own will. Well, and, and that's been the tag, the tagline of my podcast and, and the type of content I produce has been fitness is having the ability to do what you want to do when you want to do it. So if you want to go for a run around the park or if you want to walk on stage in, in your underwear and your swimsuit for a contest, fitness will get you there, right? I mean, fitness, mm-hmm. no matter what you want to do, it, it will get you there. You just have to decide that you want to do it. So is there anything that I didn't ask? Is there any final, as we, to wrap it up, are there any points that you want to mention or anything that you want to call out in the book that you think a reader or, or the listener should pay attention to when they pick up a copy? Oh, wow. Um, well, I, I mean, these, you asked such great questions and I feel like we really covered the scope of the book from, from beginning to end. Um, I just, you know, overall, I just, 
I felt it was very important to sort of connect the dots in, in the history of fitness, um, because I think women's fitness has largely been covered in the past as kind of, you know, this series of like disparate crazes and fads. And I wanted to show that this was actually, um, you know, there was actually one narrative here of how women um, became more empowered to to develop physical competence and confidence and trust. And, and, you know, I make the case that that, that trust and that strength can be translated to, you know, every other aspect of our life. So, um, yeah, I guess. But but that's what I've heard. I've heard that from friends. A friend of mine wrote a great blog a number of years ago about being able to carry up one of those water bottles up three flights of stairs in her Boston apartment. You know, she's like maybe five foot one or five foot two. And, mm-hmm. and she was like talking about how strength training allowed her to put that on, you know, I forget how much, seven, you know, those things are gallons and seven pound, pounds a gallon. You're talking about a 40, 50 thing to haul up, you know, three or flights of stairs. And now, now, now to wrap up, this is going to be my editorial because one of the reasons why when I, when I saw this book and for listeners, I saw a post on, on Twitter by a mutual friend of ours. And she's actually, just so you know, Dr. Natalia Petrozella is actually the official historian for the All About Fitness podcast. It's been a while since I've had her on. I think I had her on at the beginning of last year, um, but she's been on the, the podcast three or four times. But she is my official quote-unquote historian. She's my, a good friend, so yeah, I, so, yeah, yeah I so, <laughs> but So when I saw this, I immediately, I knew, I want, number one, I knew I wanted to read the book, and number two, I wanted to have you on the podcast. But here's the thing, Danielle, and I mentioned this to you um, as before we hit record, the thing that, that frustrates me in the industry is that you still see this glass ceiling. I mean, right now we're talking about the ceiling for NFL, you know, and African-American and minority NFL coaches. But in the fitness industry, there's this glass ceiling where women do go into leadership. A lot of women are in club operations and club leadership, but they're relegated to human resources, group fitness, marketing, maybe operations, depending, not COO, but more of like club in, in-house maintenance and operations. And really, there really hasn't been a major health club company that's cracked the code and had a female. I mean, Equinox did for a little bit, but she was more from the health club or from the hotel industry when they were looking to expand into hotels. So it really is. That is one of the things that I think is the the industry could do much better. Um, They could the leadership on that could be much better because when you look at the users and who does fitness, majority of is women. I think it's probably Mm fifty five, sixty percent women. Is that something? The final question I'll ask is that something that you noticed in your writing? Did you pick up on that at all? That you still, even though a lot of the stuff is being marketed towards women, a lot of decisions are still being made by by my gender, unfortunately. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. And I, you know, the book, um, it was sort of intentional in that I chose to, I, I only highlighted female pioneers, you know, um, I, I wanted to really showcase the work of women who have often gone sort of unsung or who have been forgotten by history to show uh, you know, their, their impact in, in getting to where we are today. But, um, but my hope too, is that the book galvanizes, you know, women today and, and people of all genders today to recognize that it's not like, you know, okay, we've arrived, you know, <laughs> we did it, that there's still so much work ahead. And that if you, if you just sort of take a step back and take a, and, and take a, close look at what's, you know, at the forces that are at play and who's making decisions. Um, you know, 
I think it's pretty easy to find areas for improvement and, and areas that are worth fighting for. So um, I'm very, thank you for highlighting that. And, and I agree. I think, you know, hopefully there will be many sequels, <laughs> if not written by me, written by future generations. Well, and, and that's, and, but, but this is because one of the things I like about the work that I love, I mean, let me, let me say that, that I love about the work that you and Dr. Petrozella do is that you really do highlight how fitness has become a part of our day-to-day life and our overall culture. So Danielle Friedman, the book is, I'm sorry, I want to make sure I get the whole title. Danielle Friedman, the book is Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World. How can people track you down, follow you, engage with you, and learn more about the type of work you're doing? Yeah, thank you. I am on Instagram at Danielle Friedman Writes, and I do share a lot of fun archival fitness materials and videos and, and good stuff there. Um, I'm on Twitter at D Friedman Writes, and you can also visit my website, which is danielle-friedman.com. That, I, I say this at the end of almost every interview, that was a fascinating discussion. I love, I mean, look, selfishly, I love these discussions. And if you want to learn more about exercise, if you want to learn more about fitness, and specifically, if you want to learn about the type of workouts that you should be doing, and if you want to learn about the type of workouts that can help you slow down the aging process, that's right, exercise can slow down how the passage of time affects your body. Well, if you want those resources, how to work out and how exercise slows down aging, Pick up one of my two books, Smarter Workouts, The Science of Exercise Made Simple, or Ageless Intensity, High Intensity Workouts to Slow the Aging Process. You will learn more than you ever wanted to know about how exercise affects your body. Now, again, you hear, you hear the enthusiasm in my voice when I speak with Danielle because I, really, I find this a fascinating subject. And, and to contextualize things, right? When you look at the 30s with, with the recession and the 40s with World War II, by the 1950s, of course we're going to take it easy. Of course we're looking for leisure and we don't have to grind and we don't have to suffer and we don't have to get shot at or fight for food and all that fun stuff that was going on in decades previous. But also, too, a life of leisure means we're not act- active and we're not exercising. So as recently as the 1950s and 60s, think back to that. For those that grew up the same era I did, I grew up in the 70s and 80s watching reruns, watching Leave it to Beaver, watching I Love Lucy. Those shows made no mention of exercise. When you look at the sitcoms in the 80s, 90s, and beyond, in sitcom characters from 80s and beyond, you'd have the characters exercise or try to get in shape or do various things, go to the gym. And so it's been interesting to see how fitness and exercise has become an active and integral part of our culture. And that's why I love these books. I mean, I love... I spoke recently with Bill Hayes, the author of Sweat, about the history of exercise. Dr. Petrozella herself is working on a book on the history of fitness culture. And this, this is the type of content I want to bring you, though. It's not just exercise and, yeah, we got to work these muscles and do this, but it's more, how does this all fit in? What's this all mean? Where are we going? What, what's the answer to life? And can we find it through it? I don't know. I don't want to get that ethereal, but it really is. I just want to give you a different version or different point of view of exercise. That's really what I want to do with this podcast is it doesn't just have to be doing the sets and reps, but it's understanding how do we contextualize, how do we make exercise fit into our lifestyle overall, and what's that mean for us? Fascinating topic, fascinating discussion. All the contact information is down below in the show notes. Hey, you can reach out to me, Pete, at PeteMcCallFitness.com. 
That is Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. Obviously, my website, PeteMcCallFitness.com. A lot of great content up there. Put a lot of information out there. What I'm trying to do is help you learn how to use exercise to not only enhance your quality of life, but maybe slow down the aging process. And as always, thanks for stopping by. And I certainly look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness.